Hi, I'm David Herskovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram, at ShopBurb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Chemdog, Weasel, the Albany Gang. These names are associated with a wild bunch of teen cannabis connoisseurs who once roamed the streets of New York looking for kind bud, weed that stood out from the average Mexican that most people smoked. Joe Murray, a.k.a. A.J. Sour Diesel, was one of those kids, barely out of high school on a mission to find the best weed in the city. The Grateful Dead and Deadheads are part of this story, as is Wetlands, a downtown club where jam bands played and the best weed was brought to market. Joe Murray's quest for the best turned him into a cultivator in the bad old days when getting caught meant serious jail time. After getting thrown out of an apartment he used for a grow room in Midtown Manhattan, he headed for the hills, the Catskills to be precise, where he lived alone tending to his plants with a zealot's intensity, eventually bringing it back to the city, changing the game and raising the bar on what people were willing to pay for the best flower. It became so hot that he had to go off the grid to avoid people's incessant pursuit of his primo bud. That's when he got the moniker AJ, as an asshole Joe, a name he proudly embraces to this day. Now he's legit, ready to launch the AJ Sour Diesel Presents brand at dispensaries wherever legal. So listen up to this wild and woolly tale of then and now. Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Today, my guest is Joe Murray, a.k.a. A.J. Sour Diesel. Legend of the game, a game changer of the game. Creator of the famous A.J. Sour Diesel, one of the most popular sativa strains ever. I sort of look at him like the Banksy of the cannabis game, who has now decided it's time to step up, claim the crown, and continue to produce some of the best smoke on the planet. Joe, how does that sound to you? You buy into any of that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I I'd make a couple corrections to that. You know, I wouldn't call myself the the creator of sour diesel, okay. uh, and you know, I definitely don't need to wear a crown, but um, crown of thorns. But I do try to grow really good weed, and you know, and I think most of the time, you know, come close at least. So why do you say you're not the creator of Sour Diesel, but I know you have a very long and personal, intimate relationship with what you don't like to call strains, right? What do you like to call these different, what we've called? Varieties. Varieties, yeah, call okay. Varieties, then. Well, Sour Diesel uh, happens by accident. If anyone would get credit for creating it, it would be Mike Klopp. But, you know, in actuality, like, we were all just, you know, getting our hands on some, you know, good genetics back then and great things just, you know, inadvertently came out of it. And it was, it was Mike Klopp's grow room that the, the sour diesel seed came out of. Who's and Mike Klopp? Can you tell us who Mike is? Identify him briefly. 
Mike Klomp is the guy they called the weasel. And he, uh, you know, was, he was the guy that, that basically turned us all on to the cam dog when we were, mm. you know. Yeah. I think we're going to have to go back in time here a little bit in the time machine, the cannabis time machine. It's so we can sort of draw a picture of what you were, what you're talking about, what it was like back then. What year are you, are you referring to? Uh, I guess it was around 1992 that I graduated high school in 1992 and started going to a lot of Grateful Dead shows. And you were in New York at the time, or where were you? I was living in New York City, yeah, okay. and 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 going to uh, you know all the all the East Coast Grateful Dead shows. And then there was a there was a nightclub in downtown New York called Wetlands, and that was kind of like. You know, that was like the epicenter of Grateful Dead culture. You know, we had Sheep's Meadow and Wetlands. So between those two places, you know, that's where the Sheep's jam bands. Daytime, Wetlands at night, you know, that, that the whole scene would sort of get together. And that's that's where I, that's where I met Mike Klopp. And Mike Klopp had crossed paths months earlier with Chemdog and had obtained the Cam 91 cut and was growing it uh, in Staten Island. So Okay, so wait, let me, I'm going to be interrupting you. Sorry, I just want to, because I want to, you know, make it a little bit more obvious for people who don't know the history as well as you do, certainly. And, and I'm not even that familiar with some of this, what I'm learning about what was going on back then. So Chemdog was someone else who was also growing varieties, who had was like a real like horticulturalist of the time. Cam Dog had, had met some fellas from Colorado who were selling weed that they had gotten from California on Grateful Dead tour. And Cam Dog bought some weed from them and liked the weed so much that he decided to exchange information with them. Mm. Later on, they met up. He got more from these guys in Colorado, and then, you know, the seeds were found in 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 that second batch. And so he planted those seeds, and out of those seeds came all the all the cams that we have today. Okay, so, so let me just also backtrack a little bit as well here, because prior to that, it was very rare to find good weed in New York, right? Because in the 80s, let's say, you know, prior to this time, we mostly had Mexican weed that was had, was full of seeds. Really, people weren't even smoking the plant for the most part, or the flower, I mean. And so this was very scarce, right? People didn't even have an experience of smoking. the. Re- if you were willing to pay for it, there was always good weed around, but it was expensive. And, you know, and I, I always wanted to have good weed, so... and. By having good weed, other people, you know, wanted good weed. So, I it kind of like put me in this position where you know a new a, a new market emerged for really high end, expensive weed. And so, and in and while in pursuit of finding you know the best weed, you know, we we that's how we came across uh, Cam Dog because we were always looking for new, better things. We came across Mike Klopp and Wetlands. 1992, who had the Chem 91, and that was was the first time that that I'd ever tried that particular weed. And were you growing already at this time? 
No, I didn't start growing until 1994. So at this time, I was just, you know, scouring New York City looking for the best weed and, and trying to get as much of it as possible. And, you know, so hanging out at wetlands all the time was a way to, uh, <laughs> you know, to, to try and because people would come there to sell their weed. And so my job would be to try and like find them and buy it all before, you know, before anyone else did. And then you would distribute it. So you saw that there was a market for this high end cannabis and uh, wetlands was the center of, of that kind of activity. So you kind of tried to corner the market on that stuff. Yeah, sort of, but it was more like cornering the market just to, just so that me and my friends could have it all. <laughs> exactly, it, wasn't yeah. even, it, wasn't, it was less of a business and more of a, of a passion. Yeah. Just, you know, if someone showed up at Wetlands to sell a pound of weed, I'd try to buy it all right away, you know, at any price, whatever they wanted, just to get it, you know, just so that we could have it all and then take it back, you know, to our place and then divide it all up and, you know, and that was it. So how did you develop this passion for the plant in this way? You know, obviously many people have smoked over the years and didn't go this far. You know, it wasn't that important for them. What made it so important for you? What were you getting out of it that uh, you felt like that you the wanted more? It was really of it? the only thing I was getting out of it. I mean, I knew that I could, I knew that, I, that, that it could be profitable. But first and foremost, it was always about, you know, just getting you know, getting good weed. There was other things you could do to make money if, if that if that was your priority. But but my priority was always having the best weed. I'm not saying I invented that. Everyone, you know, there's always been a constituency of people that wanted to have the best weed uh, since the beginning of time, I'm sure. And, uh, but it's just that, you know, we sort of like streamlined this whole concept of like the best weed and, and, how it, it could exist in a whole different class because, you know, it was worth so much more than, than just regular stuff. And it also that it could be grown on the East Coast because the East Coast had no real reputation at that point for, you know, high-end weed, did it, for growing? Well, yeah, it did. It did? There was a lot of great things that, that, that were around back then. They were just hard to get, you know, but there there were other great things as well, you know, there was hash plant and, you know, a chocolate thunderfuck and, you know, there was other things around that were on the level. I don't know if they were, if any of them were as good. You know, I think at the point where we discovered Chemdog, that was sort of like, you know, we, we'd reached a new high in what the potential mm -hmm. for you know, it could be. Nice. So you were... Earlier, you said that it was an accident that when you actually got to that point around when in 93, 94, when you were thinking that you would actually start growing something, could you like tell me or paint a picture of what that was like? And also New York in those days at the same well, time. Well, I was living in, a, in, a, in an alcove studio apartment and I converted the kitchen to a grow and then I converted you know the alcove to a grow and to start growing weed in a doorman building in Midtown Manhattan. That's how I got started. And then shortly thereafter, I was evicted. <laughs> but, right. For the, for, for the smell. Oh, I so, see. Someone caught on. So, yeah. So, I, I actually, I, that's how I started. What made you think you could grow? Did you did you have any experience, a green thumb? Did you ever growing anything before? I mean, yeah, I'd grown plants, you know, 
as a kid, I tried growing seeds out, you know, from, you know, Mexican weed that, you know, we'd found, but never had like actually brought plants to, uh, to flower, but it needed to happen. Like I just knew it had to happen. It was always kind of like my, my dream since I was a kid to, to grow weed, you know, looking at high times magazine as a teenager, you know, it's just one of the one of the life goals was to do that. But what what kind of background do you have otherwise? You know, in terms of family and you know, was were your family kind of agreeable to this kind of behavior, or is this where you sort of like exiled, or how did they, or did they know about it at all? They knew there was a lot of shenanigans going on, and they they did not approve. But you know. At a certain point, I guess they just had to accept things the way they were. So it wasn't really, it didn't create that much family friction, you know. I think I, I think they were used to being disappointed by the time I was a young adult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Nothing Okay. laughs> you broke them in well, I guess. I I, yeah, I didn't drop out of Harvard. <laughs> so so after you were kicked out of that apartment, what did you do? Did you, you went somewhere else with a bigger grow space? Yeah, so... so I figured I'd just get evicted again if I moved somewhere else. So I basically just packed up all my stuff, including the plants, and moved them to a house in the Catskills where, you know, I was able to just do whatever I wanted and be left alone. So, uh, and I had no idea what I was doing at that time. And uh, it took it took about three and a half years of starving to death before I actually could make enough money to come back and live in New York City again. So I kinda I kinda got trapped up in the mountains for a while up there. But it was a great way to figure things out because it was really like do or die in that situation. So at this point you had the seeds that you wanted? It goes back to wetlands and back in the day, me and, and two other friends of mine, you know, that were on the, always on the hunt for the best weed and always looking to find, you know, the best stuff we possibly could. Whenever we found any any type of, of of weed that was good, you know, we would call it diesel. You know, we would say, oh, you know, like weed is diesel. You know, but anything could have been diesel. Like a huge pit bull could have been diesel, or like you know, some you know dude walking down the street, you know, like walking you know, all ripped and jimmed out could have been diesel. So diesel was just like a, an adjective that, that was used for, for anything that was extremely powerful, right? So, but it, the first time we bought Cam Dog at Wetlands and we took it into the back office and we sat down and, and started smoking it, you know, I, I turned to my friend and I said, this weed is the diesel. There is no other diesel. And that was how originally the Cam Dog became called the diesel. We didn't like the name Cam to begin with because it just it just didn't sound right, you know, in a, in a, in a market where people were already like, you know, mistrusting of what could be what cannabis could be laced with. So so we didn't think Cam was a good name. So we went with we just started calling it the diesel. And that's how it all started. And then there was, you know, another plant that I started in 1994 and it was very similar to the cam, and we used to call that the diesel as well. And uh, the, the sour diesel was a seed that went to what's commonly referred to as the Albany kids, which is a bunch of uh, kids that lived up in Albany that would also come down and see 
Mike Klopp. And that's where the sour diesel seed came from. So and from 1995 to 1998, I was growing the diesel, which is the seed that I had gotten from Ken. Okay. And then, but around 1994 or five came the sour diesel, which was the seed that the Albany kids had. And I grew it once in 1995 when I first moved to the Catskills. And they gave me a plant of that as a, as a housewarming gift. But I, I always grew the diesel seed that I was growing. And then, you know, I, they would, they were doing theirs and calling, and they were calling theirs sour diesel. So it wasn't until I got evicted in 1998 from from my house that, in the Catskills, <laughs> and in the process of moving and giving the cuts to somebody else, that mine was lost. So then, starting in 1998, I grabbed a cut of sour diesel from my buddy, and that's when I started putting out sour diesel in New York city. And by 2000, you know, we stepped it up significantly and we were just in regular full-time production. Growing in, in Manhattan, right? In the downtown Brooklyn. Brooklyn? Yeah. And in Brooklyn, you know, there was, there was a few, we had a few locations over the years, but most of them were in Brooklyn. And then it became like a really big thing, right? A hot thing in the marketplace right? where people were, you know, wanting it very badly and you didn't really have enough to fulfill the orders. I guess. I mean, and it's weird because back then, you know, I didn't really like, I didn't try to put myself out there. So it was out there. People talked about it, but it was mysterious. And, you know, I was just aware of how it affected my immediate circle, you know, and how people, you know, where a lot of people were just really desperate to get it, you know? And, and so I, my position really was just usually just hiding out, avoiding people's calls and, you know, <laughs> that's why you're the Banksy. Low, that's why you're the Banksy, trying not man. To talk into people <laughs> like hating going out in public <laughs> any place, you know, there were places like Sway, if you remember, you know, sure. where like everyone would go out and smoke weed and like, it was like the weed social hangout galaxy and all these places where you could go out in New York city and smoke weed in public. But like, I could never go to any of those places because there's like 10 people I'm avoiding because I haven't, you know, I've been ignoring them for months because I just can't deal, you know? And, 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 and so, yeah. So for me, it was more of like a personal thing where I was just like avoiding friends, people that I knew that were just nagging me all the time. And I didn't pay much attention to the bigger picture. What was, how it was actually, becoming culturally more relevant, you know, I, I sort of just hid from all that. Right, but you know about it, right? You know that people were going to these, you know, big f fancy parties like you're talking about where everybody was willing to just spend and pay whatever they had to, you know, because they just was so special. What was it that was special about it, do you think? I think there's a lot of things that are special about it. I think it was obviously way before its time, which made it very unique. I think that it was entering a market that hadn't had focused on quality. It had focused on every other economic aspect, but, but it hadn't focused on quality. So it was just a whole new perspective on, on cannabis, you know, and the way 
people that like they that buy and use cannabis on a retail level perceive you know its potential because they they just hadn't seen anything like that before you know the, the weed that that smells so delicious and tastes so good and 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 works so well it was a it was just it became a a phenomenon you know it's still one of my favorite things to smoke today and I still grow it and love it and now that I have other things on the table that I can at least compare it to, back in the day, there really wasn't anything else to compare. So now you feel that there's a lot more options to choose from and that's a comparable? Sure. If you're a, a, a retail customer now and you go into a store in California or you know anywhere where you have a, 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 a recreational or medical market, you're going to see all these products competing and you're going to have all these choices, you know, that, that just back then your choice was like Mexican, Cali Outdoor, or Sour Diesel. It was in a class by itself. Today you're producing this under a brand that's uh, legal, right, in California? Yep, yep. We have a, a new facility out in, in Long Beach, and, and yeah, pretty soon we'll be, we'll be available on the market. and We're going to be launching our new brand. And what's it going to be called? Well, it's sort of like an AJ Sour Diesel presents, and then whatever the strains are is what I'm kind of leaning towards. So, it's it's a huge focus just to get the the garden up and running. So, you know, I leave a lot of that marketing strategy stuff to people that are better at it. Mm-hmm. So, what does the A stand for in your name? Because I've seen it, I've I've seen it, it saying uh, online that it means asshole. Yeah, some people some people call me asshole. <laughs> Are you serious? Uh, to me, if, you know, given what you were saying earlier, maybe it has something to do with the fact that they couldn't get, you know, because it sounds like uh, that, you know, you really had to know you or somebody who, you know, was had that available and not everybody did. And and you couldn't, everyone couldn't have it. So you had to say yes or no to whoever, you know, you know, like you had to make your choices about who to sell and who not to sell and therefore pissing off the people who didn't get it right and came up with that name. Exactly. So, it, it, you know, when, so, when someone introduced that name, it was well-received in some circles. So <laughs> it, it, it stuck. But you wear it proudly, obviously. You, you put it in there. I embraced it. And, uh, you know, when I found out that it, people called me AJ, I just said, okay, well, then, you know, you call me whatever you want. I'd rather you call me that then, you know, by my real name, if you want to create some mythical character, then go ahead. I prefer that to you actually talking about me. AJ became the nickname. And then all my friends obviously started calling me that because they, they loved it. And, yeah, uh, I want to piss you it, off, it of course. <laughs> yeah, it sucks. So now that, you know, there's a legal game and there's so many other players and obviously there's an industry and, you know, so much has changed in the years since you first got involved, how do you feel about all of that in general? Do you feel like, you know, because of the large corporations that are getting involved and obviously the huge grows, can you really maintain quality while still growing such, such big grows? Well, I think you can. I think it's obviously a lot harder and it takes a lot more work to run a commercial grow and and to pass, you know, all the tests that we need to go through today and, and to make sure we're putting out safe, clean products. But it's a huge pain in the ass. It's 
it's slave labor, but it's uh, it's like how could you, how could you not do it when giving the when given the opportunity? And that's how I look at it. You know, like I didn't really get to start a real career, you know, till I was in my forties because it was it just wasn't possible till now. So so now that I do have that opportunity, even though. There's nothing I, you know, part of me would love more than to never walk into a grill again and not have to go do all this work. But it, at the same time, I love, I love the results of the work, and it's, I would be crazy to not dive headfirst into it at this point. You know, that, that now that I have the opportunity. So now that there are other people use the name or the diesel strain, you know, like the varieties, it's very hard to actually know what you're getting right because these these names anybody can use them or is it is there a way to protect it or what how do how do people go about now uh creating a new variety and owning it well one day i'm sure there'll be there'll be a a, a way to protect yourself and but at the same time i have mixed feelings about how i would proceed there because it's become part of the culture and you know, I, I really do just look at myself as like not like I said in the beginning. Like I'm, this is, I'm not some master creator, and and even with the 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 I breed cannabis genetics now, and I'm you know working on a big breeding project, and I'm super happy about a lot of the results already that are of, of things that that I've been working on, but. Ultimately, I always give credit back to the plant, and I feel like this is something that humans have been doing probably for 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 a million years or more, and we're just passing it on to the next step and ensuring that it keeps going. and And that's really that's what I'm proud of, and that's I'm just proud to be a part of that and feel lucky to be a part of that. And I was lucky just to be at the right place and the right time, you know, that I. I got to go on this whole ride with the Camdog genetics and the sour diesel and all this stuff. Like, it's been a great ride. And are you surprised by the health and wellness aspects that have been discovered over the years, you know, in connection with the cannabis? You know, things that people may have felt intuitively in some ways, you know, this helps me and this or that. But now that they're coming out with so many studies of, you know, for serious oh, no, health I, problems. I feel more vindicated because this is something that I knew that was, you know, I, inherent, I'm not, you know, I, I don't, I'm not ready to jump on the bandwagon and say cannabis cures cancer, you know, I don't know. But I know that it's been a good medicine for me my whole life and just like keeping my head right and just keeping, you know, my attitude in a better place. And, and it's just been a positive, constructive hobby that has kept me moving and, and, and working and motivated for a long time. So, I mean, that's what it's done for me. So I've always known that it, that, that it was a positive thing, you know, and, uh, it just makes you, if anything, people, I, I was always one of these, like the government's full of shit type of people, you know, even when I was a kid. And uh, I think we'd had a lot to do with that, you know, so, so no, not, None of it surprises me because I just assume that, that a lot of what you know you hear is not true in in life in general. So sure. Well, the counterculture aspect of you know being underground and connected with other people who feel the same way about the government and you know politics and 
music and whatever else is going on out there was very, you know, important to the to the world because it helped sustain a lot of these ideas that would have been lost otherwise. But today, there is there still something like that, do you feel, that there's still a counterculture or underground that goes beyond just buying the plant in a, in a store, in a, in a dispensary? It's hard to say what is counterculture because obviously what was counterculture becomes mainstream. So what is the new counterculture? I don't, I don't know. People that, want, that are demanding the legalization of ketamine, I don't know anything about that, and I've never even tried ketamine, but some people, you know, think that that's a good idea, so maybe they would do counterculture, or maybe whatever is going against the mainstream is now counterculture. Cannabis is no longer in that, uh, it's no longer in that category, I guess. For people like us, you know what I'm saying, we'll always feel like we're taking a risk, and maybe, like, we'll always feel like we're breaking the rules when we or smoking a joint, whether you're with your friends or family at a wedding or you sneak out of a bar, whatever it is, it's like there's still like this risk element that you could get in a little trouble. And maybe in, in 20 years, what will it be like when that doesn't exist anymore and, and we're beyond relevant and there'll be a whole new generation of kids and, and how they'll regard it and treat it. We'll see. You know, Like I always say, you can't smoke inside in public places because of insurance companies and employees, but what's going to happen when they have robots, you know, working on that? <laughs> that's, have all that's a good idea. Places where you, you can, you can, you can smoke cannabis inside and clubs and bars or whatever. And what's that whole culture going to be like? And uh, who knows? You know, we'll see. Yeah. Well, even in New York where there are clubs, apparently I haven't been, but I've been hearing about them and I'm, I plan on going to clubs that are like secret clubs where people go in, in a building, they take an elevator, go to a floor, and then there's a party going on where they're also selling weed and there's music and people hanging out and just have, you know, relaxing and having a good time. But clearly illegal, but pretty open, you know, that if you really care enough, you can probably find one and go there. So, you know, as the, as the, uh, interest gets broader and broader and more common and it's you know it's really hard living in New York given what's going on in California you know where it's so much more enlightened to pretend you're still living in a dark ages here while someone else you know like what in Massachusetts they're having fun or somewhere else all around us even during like Giuliani but especially before in New York you know in a way you could say that weed was almost more legal in, in, in New York City than it was anywhere else in the world at that time. Exactly. Because, you yeah. know, I mean, you could just smoke in bars if you knew the bartender, and you could smoke in restaurants if, if they knew you there. And, sure. You know, you light a joint and bring you an ashtray. Well, yeah, one of the coolest things was in the going to movie theaters, smoking and watching a movie <laughs> in a movie theater was one of the great things. Exactly. Uh, we always smoked weed in the movie theater. I mean, I remember smoking weed on, on, on a plane back right. in the early 90s. So <laughs> the Dutch coffee uh, model seems to be the most civilized where, you know, you buy it, you sit down, and you smoke it, and maybe they'll give you a coffee or a fresh squeezed juice, you know, to, to wash it down. And it just seems the most civilized. Yeah, at Vancouver, where my uh, sponsor, Burb Company, is headquartered, is is something like that. You know, now they have this great like transitional moment where they're trying to accommodate 
the new legal with the old cafes and, you know, like establishments that are actually businesses open for business, very public and very easy to go into, but they're trying to resolve how do you figure that out? The old businesses that are still, you know, operating in this gray market and then these with the, you know, MedMen or whatever, the mega new places opening. Aren't they opening like a district in West Hollywood where they're going to have actual cafes that I, I understand is opening either very soon or is already opened? In Denver, they have some bus companies and they do loops around the city and you can smoke on the bus at least. And because other than that, there really is no place you can smoke in public in, in, in the city of Denver. So, you know, they don't, they don't have things like that. You can, you can buy weed, you can possess it, but the second you smoke it, you're committing a crime unless, you know, unless you're at home. So, and if you're, if you're a tourist or you're staying in a hotel, then you really, you still have to break the law, smoke the weed. So just giving people places to go is, is crucial. Yeah, that's true. And it's up, it's upturning, disrupting a lot of these industries like the hotels, hospitality, for example, because people are, you know, they expect to be able to smoke when you're in California and you're, you know, whatever, there for business and you want to relax, but there's nowhere to smoke. So they're, they're trying to figure out how to manage that because it's, you know, it's just part of life at this point. You have a bar for drinking every hotel. So what are you going to do for the people who also want to smoke? Yeah, and it's it's it just seems like nothing's changed if you have to go for a walk around the block and and, right. and you know sneak <laughs> on the sidewalk. You know, it feels like nothing's changed. <laughs> well, the vapes. I know now there there's a lot of talk about it because the people have been dying. Obviously, that's not a good thing. But that is kind of a more low-key way of smoking, so people can do that at a bar somewhere and nobody would really notice or care. Particularly, I've, I've seen that happening in New York quite a bit. And I just saw there was a list of the top 10 cities in the world by consumption of, of marijuana, and New York was number one, even though it's illegal. <laughs> there were times when I just you know, sat and scratched my chin and said to myself, where is this all going? You know, <laughs> I see what you're saying. At one point, we knew so many people that were selling so much, and you know, you're like, "How? I can't believe it. all this stuff is getting sold. Like, where is it going?" Sorry, but people would come to New York, wouldn't they, from all the East Coast? Because that's where you know you would go to buy your, or you would eventually would get yeah, to Boston. That, or but I think also, I think I think that New York is just a huge consumer. I think just cope to cope, right? With, you know, living in New York. You know, you have to, you have, you need some sort of mechanism because it's, it's, it's a crazy town. You can really go crazy with stress and anxiety just being out and about in New York and just coming home and smoking weed, I think is something that a lot of people do just to maintain their sanity. Yeah. So uh, I just want to, before we end our conversation, because just something that you said earlier is like stuck in my mind and I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit, because you said you're working on some new varieties now, something that you're developing. Yeah. I mean, I'm just taking things that I really, that I really like and just trying to merge them with other things I really like or make the things I like, you know, a little better here or there. And yeah, so just, Working on trying to make a better, a better bud, a better experience. So you think it's going to be just sort of like an incremental like improvement or advance? Could it be something that's like a whole new 
category that opens up a whole new world? I mean, I hope so. I hope that'd be great. You know, like you have to, you have to look for it to find it. And I've found, I've found several things that I, that I really like and people seem to like. And I've been working with a lot of like heavy sativas and long flowering plants, you know, a lot of hazes and just looking for unique flavors and it's my favorite thing to do is to have a grow with not, you know, every single plant is something, is something different, you know, instead of, you know, you look at a grow and it's all one plant that looks very uniform and looks nice. But to me, I get really excited to go to work when I come into the room and, and there's 50 varieties in the room and, you know, I'm seeing them all for the first time, what they're like and getting excited for, for the harvest. And that I don't know, it keeps me mo- more motivated. So for me, in order to get excited about work, I have to like keep working on new things. I think a lot of people feel that way, or else you're just doing the same job day in day out. But when you're working with all new stuff every time, it's like it's exciting. So do you think in the future in this industry that some it's possible to have like a dominance variety that is, becomes like whatever the Coca-Cola? of the industry that everyone loves and everybody wants and can't get enough of? Or is it going to be all fractured into all these multiple things? It's more like the, the, the music industry, I guess, where, you know, you've got, you've got the pop music and that's going to be the strains that are the strain. They're, they're the new strains du jour that are just constantly outdoing themselves and marrying each other. And then, those are like the tabloid varieties, you know, and then, and then you've got more classics, you know, you've got jazz, you've got rock and, and, and all the, the different categories within each of those genres. So, I mean, it's kind of more like that where the Eagles are always going to be popular, but in the pop scene, you know, things change day to day. So it's kind of like that. Like there's some staple varieties that, that, that are just always going to be relevant, I think, you know? Like, no one's ever going to get sick of NL5 haze. It doesn't go out of style. I think sour diesel is also a plant like that, like the classic original sour diesel plant never goes out of style, you know? You can make great varieties with it. You can make great varieties with other plants. It tastes great, smell great, and, and enjoy them back-to-back. But it's always going to be, like, like a, a, an icon of the culture, just on its own. That's right, man. And you are icon of the culture as well. Thank you, Joe Murray, for taking the time to tell us about the history and the future of this great plant. (laughs) Thanks, Joe. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at ShopBurb and subscribe to this podcast at ShopBurb.com forward slash Light Culture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms.